I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You can unlock the entire LRB archive for free for 24 hours by visiting lrb.co.uk forward slash open. Well, so I think we'll start by hearing from our fantastic panel. I mean, this really is such a rare opportunity to have a set of people like this all together in one line. Um, But I will make sure that we have time for a good chunk of questions from you at the end, too. So, yes, let me let me introduce these wonderful people. Um, This is Mary Kay Wilmers, uh, who has been the editor of the London Review of Books for almost 25 years. is that right? I don't know. Sorry. Uh, maybe that's not correct, <laughs> but since 1992, two or three, two or three years, um, a magazine she co-founded in 1979 with Carl Miller of um, UCL English, which is a, a nice little link there. Um, Mary Kay is perhaps best introduced by the magazine that you all have in front of you. That Those pages, um, which uh, on the website of the LRB, I think this puts it the best, stand up for the tradition of the literary an intellectual essay in English um, are some of the most various, in-depth, uh, serious, delightful and powerful to be found around. Um, the magazine combines topicality, um, fearless takes on the events of the day with depth of scholarship from some of the best minds around um, and truly excellent prose. This, this should this not be forgotten. No, no, this is, this is what I say. This is what I say. Um, uh, and next, Andrew O'Hagan is one of the LRB's um, editors, in fact, described rather romantically, I think, as editor-at-large. That sounds very elusive, sort of um, spy-like, I think. Um, his most recent novel, The Illuminations, um, which came out last year, was long-listed for the Booker Prize, an honour he's received twice before um, also, and is being uh, turned into a drama serial for the BBC. Uh, he was selected as one of Granter's Best Young Novelists in 2003 and has won the LA Times Book Award and the E.M. Forster Award. I think it will be really interesting to hear from Andrew today about his developing role as almost the um, LRB's roving reporter, uh, in which capacity he's written some fascinating pieces in recent years, including his piece on Julian Assange, which I'm sure many of you will have seen and and, and enjoyed. Um, to my right is Ben Easton, uh, who is editor and the co-founder with Jacques, Jacques Testard of The White Review. Um, and he's also the assistant editor at Art Agenda. His writing's been published in all sorts of illustrious places, including the London Review, Review of Books, Freeze, uh, the New York Times, the TLS and elsewhere. Um, and he's currently working um, on a book project called My Life as a Work of Art, which is due out in September. Um, I'm sure many of you will know the White Review, but just in case you don't, it's really one of the most stylish and beautiful uh, literary and art magazines out there. And and it combines those two things in quite a unique way. 
Um, they also hold some of the best parties around, uh, which are so crowded that you generally have people uh, queuing around the block to get in. Um, so without further ado, um, let's move on to the conversation. I thought a good question to begin with might be to ask what exactly do we mean by this phrase from our title, the long-form essay? Um, what does long-form journalism mean to each of you? Is it defined by, by length? Uh, by quality, by by style, um, by the time that the piece takes to write or research, um, and and how does the essay fit into this? Thinking back perhaps to Montaigne and the idea of something provisional or risk taking. Um, Andrew, do you want to start? Well, all of those things contained in your question, really. Um, when I was at school, we used to start studying J. B. Priestley. Um, as a great exponent of the contemporary essay. And I remember the teacher sort of thwacking the table because in Scotland you have to thwack the table when you're making a point. Um, and they'd say, he's humorous, whack. Um, he's discursive, whack. Um, and he teaches you something, whack. And we'd all just stare, you know, thinking, how could we possibly bring ourselves to the point where we could do that? Um, but actually, there's something true in that. Uh, the the long-form essay, though, I think, um, is it's quite an ugly title, like all those things to do with non-fiction, really. The non-fiction novel. Non-fiction itself is quite an ugly title. Anything that defines itself as a sort of negative in that way is a bit of a problem, but nobody's come up with anything decent. What about creative non-fiction? That's the word. <laughs> creative non-fiction. But reportage doesn't quite cover it because it's not always reportage. Anyway, you get the problem. Um, but as a form, it's, I mean, I would say this, but I think it's one of the most exciting of the forms because it causes you um, to take your imagination outside. Of course, novelists and playwrights both do that too, but um, you need to make it legally um, stand up in non-fiction, even in creative non-fiction. Um, you don't get away with uh, making it up. And I think that although there's been a lot of debate around that, you know, some of the most interesting debate is around that. Um, at least in the time that I've been doing it, which is, you know, the whole time that Mary Kay's been editor of the London Review, um, she started me doing it and 25 years ago. And just for those of you, especially those of you who find it unimaginable, I mean, when I arrived at the London Review, there was one computer, um, and that was for typesetting. And all the editors, you know, um, sat at desks where there were great bundles of paper everywhere. I mean, it was, there was a sort of continuity between that kind of office and the kind of office where Charles Dickens would have worked. Uh, it was full of smoke, um, full of ashtrays, people um, editing on, on paper. Still, they're still doing that, but there's a lot more computer-generated stuff. Um, but then the, the notion was that if you were going to write a reported piece... Um, you had to go out and find every single fact for the piece. There was no sitting at the desk uh, because there was no internet. Um, I mean, the internet was just coming at that point. I'm talking about 1991, in my case. You're very much helping us segue to the digital age part of our title <laughs> here. And I love the idea that our emblem for the digital age might be the one computer that the LRB used to have for typesetting and, and what, what's happened since then. Um, Mary Kay... Uh, has your sense of um, what the LRB does with the, the uh, length of its pieces 
and the room to manoeuvre that affords its writer been something that was there from the very start? I, I don't think my concept had changed. I mean, I'd worked on several papers before. I worked on The Listener with Carl Miller and then I worked on the TLS. Um, things got longer and more expansive, but at The Listener also things, because we published things that had been broadcast, it was already much more flexible. So that, um, I mean, the book review section was separate, but the whole thing was discursive in the way that Andrew said. Um, So I don't think it's changed. I mean, what's changed more is writing on computers, um, which has made everybody on the whole less careful, but more expansive. And and then the fact that when you've read a piece online and then you get other, other articles that may interest you. I don't like that. Um, I, I think that's a fundamentally bad idea. Um, I, I think people should make their own decisions from the start. I, I, I mean, we do it, or we're going to do it, or something, but um, it seems to me to, to restrict um, people's imagination, and, and they don't take initiative, they don't look out for things, it's all a bit spoon-fed. Um, so in that sense, I think it's quite a bad idea. Mm, so but much, I can see yeah. it's unavoidable. But I'd like to come back to particularly this idea of care um, and the space for the editor and whether that continues in the digital age. But I, I, should, I just um, want to say one more thing. that for In LRB terms, the most important thing about long form would be do we or don't we hyphenate it? Actually, I think um, in one of the uh, um, newspaper pieces I read uh, to prepare today, Mary Kay, you were described um, not only as the best editor in the world, but as the best copy editor in the world, which I think is a title that any of us would envy. Um, Ben, uh, how does the White Review uh, interact with this idea of um, the long-form essay? One thing that I noticed is that your interviews are very, very in-depth, which is quite unusual... I think, in today's magazine landscape. Well, I think we started the magazine in 2010 at what was kind of generally assumed to be the very end of the possibility of print publishing. So <laughs> we almost felt that we're at this cataclysmic point, so we might as well do exactly what we wanted to. And our relative experiences, myself and Jack, prior to starting the magazine, I'd worked at the BBC, who was also an aspiring writer, I suppose, and in certain senses was frustrated with what I found at the BBC with those this endless uh, endless uh, meetings you'd have to go to about social media and the way that one had to condense one's copy and the reduction of those things. So the white review was very much, uh, felt a little bit like a last stand and we could do it if we were 25 and we had loads of time. And to give young writers like ourselves the opportunity to expand upon points and to write at length and not to be forced into very rigid structures of writing that the BBC particularly and other news organisations were beginning to impose on writers. And that extended to interviews as well, the idea that you would uh, allow a degree of digression. I think digression is one of the things that I would closely associate with the long form, the idea that you might start at a point and you might have a rough idea of where it ends, but how you get there isn't predetermined. Um, and as writing was becoming more structured, was, uh, writers were under greater pressure to condense what they were writing. That was lost. And I felt that it actually leads to a very boring style of writing and a very... Um, kind of a style of writing which uh, 
confirms prejudices or confirms what you think prior to that because you have no opportunity to work it through. And the same applies to the reader. So when we started, it was really that. It was the idea that we could have a discursive space, a space in which risk could be taken and a space in which writers could go to places they hadn't anticipated going to when they started writing the piece. Hmm. Very interesting. Um, right. I, it would be logical at this point, I think, to bring the internet into this. Um, the White Review publishes both online and in print and is slightly different in each version, as does the LRB. Um, would any of you like to comment on the way that the digital versions of the magazine have reshaped its identity? I, I would. I think Mary Kay made a really interesting point that I'd like just like briefly to pick up on, which is this idea that we have an understanding, we tend to think lazily about the internet as this vast resource of information to which we have unfettered access. But in fact, as you say, it's precisely the opposite, that once you read one thing, the algorithms according to which one's uh, journey through the internet is organised narrow down your experience. If you've read one thing, you're recommended something very similar. If you buy a book on Amazon, you're recommended something very similar. And the same applies to news stories and your general experience of it. So rather than broadening your experience, it actually narrows it down. Your history determines what you look at next. And actually becomes quite hard to break out of it. It's a thing that's been talked about very interestingly by this guy, Eli Pariser, who calls it the filter bubble. And you see it on social media. Anyone who's on social media, when if you're of a particular political persuasion, the likelihood is that all of your friends are. So when something happens, everyone's shocked and can't imagine how that possibly happened. And of course, it's just your own opinions being echoed back at you. So what print can do that online can't is offer people a variety of opinions. I think once you get the London Review of Books, for instance, you're going, because you paid for it, you're likely to read everything that's in it, irrespective of whether it immediately grabs your attention. And that can be a great way of coming across things that wouldn't otherwise have interested you, that you would never have clicked on online. Uh, and the fact that it's then long form gives you the opportunity to understand the subject a little better. And then you can begin to direct. That's when the internet can be useful, because after that you might become interested in a particular subject, and then you can find out more about it. But as a way in, print, I think, is actually more open, or can be. That's fascinating to think of the internet um, as somehow uh, a curtailed series of fiefdoms rather than the infinite and expansive space that we might naturally think of it um, as. I, I suppose in the age of um, the long, in, in, in the digital age, you might think that there would be a flourishing of the long form essay simply because there aren't the constraints that um, print uh, imposes on length. Uh, but is there a problem here with attention span? Does the internet foster the sort of immersive, focused reading space that the sort of um, essays in the LRB demand and deserve? Um, can you uh, read them and engage with them properly on an iPhone where you're constantly tapping your emails or, or looking at Twitter? I, I'm sorry. I, I think you can. I mean, uh, it, it seems that people thought that it wouldn't happen, that attention spans were too short and getting shorter, but actually it seems to be the other way, um, that nobody minds. I mean, it's, it's rather hard for me to tell because I'm so old, but um, if, if, if you say that and other people say that um, young people like the physical object, um, that they like to have it. Um, so, so I don't think that is a problem. It's also very striking that everywhere you see in the Financial Times or in the Sunday Times or whatever, everybody has 
a long piece as if that was a requirement. And, and then one of the pieces in the current LRB, looking back on David Astor, when he edited The Observer, and the, and the Sunday Times introduced the big read. So it, this has been going on for, for a long time. The universe of something like the LRB has expanded exponentially, though when I came to the paper, it sold 11,000 copies. I think it sold That's nine. A lot. I think it sold nine, but we used to lie to the editors to keep, to keep them encouraged. Um, I remember telling a fantastic lie once, saying the last issue sold 14,000 copies. It was 15,000 for the first 15 years. Wasn't it? Least it was actually 3,000 because the very first one sold 18,000 copies. There still wasn't a TLS because the, yeah. um, the Times papers were on lockout. So we didn't, our rival wasn't there and everybody was interested because the New York Review had started it. So, and there was a lot of PR and we sold 18,000 copies and then it went down to 3,000 <laughs> and stayed there. But we couldn't admit that to advertisers, so we said 15. <laughs> the point was that the but now we're we're officially rated whatever we say it is it is. <laughs> the, the point was that then um, you know you, you do hear that thing through the years about how people's attention span is shrinking, the culture's dumbing down. But I mean, ABC figures tell you that LRB sells as it were seventy thousand copies now in that region. It's 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 been going up and up and up through the years. And there's one more thing I'd just like to add. Ben said, which is that um, you used to used to buy the LRB and read the read the paper, but a lot of the people who are now fans of the LRB don't buy the paper and they don't even read the whole paper online. They're fans of single articles that appeared in the LRB, and that's one of the things that the digital era has brought in. There are single pieces that appear in the LRB that will be read sometimes hundreds of thousands, even millions of people who have never heard of the LRB. That the article makes its way into the world in a particular way. Look at the recent experience of the Seymour Hirsch pieces mm. that have appeared in the paper. There are people reading them in vast numbers who don't see themselves as dedicated readers of a literary magazine. There are people who take in writing where they can find it. And that model of how we're read and how we um, create a, an enthusiasm and a culture around the paper, the paper's universe, if you like, has changed enormously in that way. Um, it still has a hardcore, those 70 that people buy copies, you know, one way or another, and read it from one end to the other. But I think um, there are untold numbers now who think of the paper as an important resource of writing who read it in a very different way. Mm, that's really interesting. Geography has disappeared. That basically. too. Yeah. Um, you used to have to get the paper to people. And the mm. enormous postage costs, I mean, that's been one of the biggest... Factors in the LRBs change, really. To what extent, as editors, do you have a sense of which of the articles might take off and go viral in that way and reach the hundreds of thousands or more that, or millions that they do? Do you, well, do you have an inkling? Well, with Seymour Hersh, it's fairly obvious. Um, no, otherwise, I mean, I, I think it's important not to think too much about that kind of yeah. thing. Um, I don't like to know how many hits. I don't know how to find out either, but obviously <laughs> other people do. Um, how many hits a piece has had, and then you'd be tempted to have more pieces mm. on that. And yeah, no. I think that's really true. Um, I think one of the we one of the 
the uh, <clears throat> most read pieces we had in the first three years of the digital incarnation of the White Review was a, an interview with a, a, an obscure Icelandic poet called Sjörn. And suddenly the numbers on it just went through the roof, like 10 times more than anything we'd ever had read. And we had no idea why, because no one's heard of him. And then it turned out that he'd mentioned eating puffin in it, and this had gone viral. And people had created kind of montage uh, pictures of puffins being eaten by Icelandic people, and they'd gone out on Instagram. And suddenly, like, thousands and thousands and thousands of people had read it. We had no idea why until we find these, yeah, kind of puffin montage. <laughs> so then it was like, do you commission loads of things about people eating cute animals? Because that would drive up. And of course... You can't predict it, and I think it's it's dangerous to you generally. Um, one of the things that the White Review is so striking for is the sheer number of writers in translation that you publish, um, including original translations that you commission. Um, was that internationalism a self-conscious thing? Yeah, I mean, it was one of the kind of key precepts when we started that we would uh, provide translation because it was so hard to get hold of translation. Uh, I think that's actually changed even in the six years that we've been going. There is more stuff in translation, it's more widely published, it's more available. Uh, and also we need translators who wanted to translate things and couldn't find places for them. Um, so it was always something that we were very eager to do, um, that was relatively easy to do. We had a network of people who could recommend things, uh, and then we could find translators for them. Um, so yeah, it was important, but it was, it was really just about the idea of trying to broadening, trying to broaden people's reading experience and, and our own as well as editors, to be honest. We, you know, it was fascinating to hear about a Korean pilot. Um, so it was something that allowed us access to a, a wider world and also allowed us to get, very practically speaking, really great literature at, you know, uh, for very little money, um, which we couldn't do here because we'd be serialized out of it by, by bigger organizations. So in a way, it was a kind of gap in the market almost. Andrew, um, picking up on something that Ben said earlier about the long essay as a space for digression and taking wrong turns and that being part of the pleasure of that experience, um, some of the essays that you write for the LRB sort of make their own making part of the telling. Um, could you say a little bit about how you sniff out those stories and fascinations? Because I think many of them take a long time to write, so you live with them for perhaps six months, 12 months of your life. I mean, it's the same. It's kind of suicide note in uh, monthly increments. You know, you, it's it's endlessly sort of um, torturous trying to work on those pieces because they, you do start them. As Ben just indicated, you start those pieces not knowing how they're going to end up. They're essentially documentary pieces. I think the ones you're talking about, as opposed to you know having a lovely time reviewing. Um, you know, Matthew Spender's memoir of his father, which you just, you know, do but the normal thing that people do, they take the book home and make notes and enjoy yourself and read it, you know, in the afternoon, you know, uh, go out into the sunshine. That's not how those big pieces happen at all. They happen through a kind of obsessiveness. Um, and the precedent uh, for these very often for me isn't, uh, wasn't really in the LRB's archives at all, although there were some brilliant examples. I mean, there was there some great documentary pieces in the LRB long before I had anything. Um, to do with the paper, you know, it's history, but the, there was a, the tradition in the New Yorker, um, which really taught me how to do them in some ways, because the, the, the writers would just go off into the woods sometimes for a year and come out waving a sheaf of paper, but what had happened to them in that invisible period became, as it were, part of the material of the piece. And it, you mentioned that business of making them personal. It comes very naturally to me, because I think that one of the things I've always enjoyed as a reader 
is uh, seeing how it was for the writer to get there. I don't like them just taking it for granted that he did all this legwork and then it's poured into an argument. I like to see, uh, as it were, the back of the clock face and how the workings are. I don't suppose any of you saw the recent piece, I think it was last month, um, by the Canadian journalist and poet Jason Guriel, where he was talking about this exactly this question of um, the personal um, in, in the essay. Uh, I, I think he dubbed it um, confessional criticism. And he was saying, uh, making the argument that in the age of the internet, um, critics have become uh, horribly self-indulgent um, much in the way of um, selfie takers. I, I, I don't endorse this argument, I, I must, must say. Um, oh, perhaps you do. Well, please tell us about this, Mary Kay. But anyway, he was, he was sort of calling for an end to this hybridised blurring between memoir and criticism. Um, what do you both think? Well, no, it's just that I think that the, the death of the author, well, that was a bit of a long while ago, it's true, but that was followed very quickly by the life of the reviewer. <laughs> um, and, and it's gone on like that. And, you know, if, if a piece is going to be very long, it, you want different things to be brought into the discussion. That's not unreasonable. It's so important to the forum that <coughs> the writer can spread her elbows and just absolutely write write themselves crazy right from the inside. You would never think it odd that a poet, I mean, to speak in your area, you know, published a poem in which the first person just appeared very naturally. You wouldn't over-associate it with them necessarily. You might do. If a poem had an opening line, for instance, you know, you left the house at three, I cried until eight. <laughs> you know, the reader just accepts that. You don't think, why are you upset? I mean, I need to get that author's number and work out what I can do to help them. You know, the, the neurosis in the reporter's um, work and life should be, or can be, let's say, in the Joan Didion sense, reinvested right back into the piece. And it could, with a, if, if judged properly, it should, um, it should generate interest in the piece rather than just become a self-indulgent exercise and sort of, you know, and here's more about me, uh, while something very interesting is happening over there. Um, to write about Julian Assange in a very... To take that example that you mentioned in a very kind of hands-off way, I think would have been less interesting because part of what he did was to draw people into his orbit in a particular way, including writers. So it seemed to me absolutely appropriate to to tell that story from soup to nuts. And in the first person. But isn't that, and then are we almost not beginning to approach a kind of definition of what long form might be? I mean, I don't like that phrase, but this idea of applying narrative or uh, techniques that we normally think of as fiction to mm. what would otherwise be, uh, you know, uh, journalism. And that kind of blurring of the two practices is something is something in that. Do you think that you can... I've wondered whether you could have a, a piece that was called long form that was just strictly factual. Uh, would it... That, well, that's, well, that's why I don't like the long form, because long form sounds to me like slow food or something. It sounds like a lifestyle choice rather than actual. But I think, no, I think uh, long form, as I think of it in this context, involves writing. It's about writing rather than reporting. And that's made it. You can write a 2,000-word piece uh, for the Sunday Times, but it's not what I would consider. It's not what we would publish. It's something different. 
the basic impulse is to write rather than report facts. And there's obviously a kind of negotiation between those two positions, but the writing, the writing, if not the writer, comes first. There's a sort of excitement that comes in non-fiction that is absolutely uh, impossible to reproduce in any other situation, as far as I know. And it's that knowledge that you have the depth of material that you would need as a novelist to write a scene. You have it in your notebook as fact. Yeah. I once asked Norman Mailer about the Executioner's Song and why it was, how it felt to write it, what it was like to write it. I went to see him in Provincetown and he described very brilliantly, I thought, this experience of having so much material, not just dialogue, but the notes around the dialogue, how it was said, what he did with his hands when he said it, what he ate for lunch after they, they, they had the conversation, what the sunlight was like coming through the window at that particular moment when he finally admitted he'd done it. You know, he had it all. And that's the kind of experience that, that for a non-fiction writer, you're absolutely in the position then to write arguably at the top of your powers, whatever your powers are, even if they're small, you can write to the top of your powers and bring the whole thing onto the page and make the judgments and also leave out what's necessary in order for the piece to sing. That's all about having done the work and having the material. And he said that that was the most exciting thing in his career every time that happened, where he realised that even as a novelist, he could never have done the scene better and he had the ability to represent it being from life. Um, it has a sort of relationship with painting in that way. If you can just get the light and, and manage it, because you have the material. And, and, and I think that in discussions of long form, we sometimes forget that. that it is, it's not just a poor man's fiction. Um, actually, the, uh, the mention of painting there reminds me, of course, um, in considering the magazine as a physical object, um, the White Review is not just a literary magazine. It is a, an art journal as well. Um, but there's something quite distinctive about the pullouts that pr you produce that mean that every issue comes with its own um, artwork, as it were. Um, the internet is usually thought to be the province of um, the multimedia journal. Uh, but why is it important for you to have photographs and paintings um, and so on in, in the magazine? There's a few things, I suppose. I mean, really practically, we were setting up at this time again when it seemed that to produce a print magazine was madness. So you had to think about what you could do to distinguish it. It didn't seem like there was a great point producing very cheap uh, paperbacks anymore, for instance, because those are the kind of things that people were beginning to read online. So producing an object was a way simply for us to distinguish ourselves, to make something that was collectible. Beyond that, it also uh, kind of, my personal interest was in contemporary art, which I'd found myself in after university. I studied literature, but found myself in contemporary art because there seemed to be such a great discourse around it. A theoretical discourse is extremely receptive to writing. And in fact, a lot of long form at that time seemed like it was being produced in, in the sphere of contemporary art. And my first commissions were writing catalogue essays. So I found myself doing that, actually, and I found it a very receptive area for writing, a very receptive area for experimental or radical writing at length. So I really wanted to uh, put that into the magazine, and we wanted to kind of encourage that negotiation or that, that conversation between those two forms. Um, I do think that, yeah, there are other ways that the long-form essay can be realised and can appeal to different people who are working in different ways uh, than is necessarily understood to be the case. Mary Kay, um, can I ask you this question? Please feel free to decline to answer, but um, I don't want to alarm you. Uh, what, <laughs> what, 
what piece have you most enjoyed and perhaps been most surprised by as an editor going through the commissioning process through the years? Um, is there a particular yeah, one you can think of? You mean like the one where we sent Andrew out to, to sit on the street and beg? <laughs> that was good fun. For you. <laughs> uh, I, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be. I mean, I could list. Oh, Many go ahead, go ahead and list them then. Uh, I don't think I particularly should. Oh. <laughs> well, I, I suppose anyway. what I'm getting at is um, your process of thinking as an editor. What thought processes? I mean, there were pieces that you were really happy to have made happen that might not have, like a lot of Jenny's Jenny Diskey's pieces, for example, maybe. You know, the, the, in the recent pieces. Well, she made those happen. Yeah, but you, were, you gave her the platform and encouraged them and all that. Yeah. Um, what I most like is putting in, putting an issue together. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's the most enjoyable moment is when you decide what's going to go in and, and in what order. Um, and I think anything more I say, I, I, um, it, it's hard. I mean, you, you always privilege the more recent pieces when you shouldn't, and um, that, that's a bad thing. Um, and there, there are just many, many pieces that I remember, and I couldn't really single one So out. for you, it's about the, the process of making the collection and the ensemble rather than the individual piece. Oh, that that yeah. seems very... One thing I was envied of the LRB was actually the opportunity to give a writer to build a corpus of writing over time. Like That doesn't happen very often. And actually the fact that you have a body of writing published in the LRB, or Jenny Diskey has this incredible body of writing published. And maybe the New Yorker had that, and there are various other places, but really that's, that as a writer is an incredible opportunity, and it's, it's a great opportunity to give to people to present not just one essay on a single subject, but actually to work through either one experience or several different experiences over time to build a relationship with publication. I think that long form could yeah. be... be fascinating. I, I, I think that's right. And then, um, I mean, we've published quite a few pieces by Hilary Mantel, for instance, before she started writing that trilogy. Um, and uh, about herself, about her health. Um, we've published a sequence of pieces by Norma Sage about her family. Um, Yes, but, um, and it's very nice to have that relationship with, with an author um, and, and to feel they're a bit sort of yours. I mean, it's a, it, it, that's the, the unattractive side is the sort of, it's ours, it's ours, it's ours, you're not allowed to write for anyone else. Um, there's quite a bit of that sort of feeling. Um, but the risk of making it all about summer loving, you know, it's nice for the writers too. To have editors like that, you know, who are constantly looking out for you, looking out for subjects, obviously, but also looking out for your prose who are on it. They don't want you to fall. They don't want you to make a fool of yourself. They don't want you to get into a legal mire. But mainly what they want to do is keep you building, keep making a contribution to their paper, but also that your body of work becomes what it might be. And suddenly you turn around, it feels like five minutes ago writing your first piece for the paper, and then suddenly you've written 200 pieces. And that's a very odd, you know, and that just, that's partly because they're as devoted to the idea of producing the paper mm. as you are to the idea of writing. Mm. Mm. So the narrative we need to trace doesn't end at the individual piece. Lovely. Um, I think it's time to open up to questions from the floor. I'm sure you're champing at the bit. Um, 
Any questions for our panellists? Yes, up okay. here. In long form, um, is there any scope for serial long form? Um, it sounds like a very nice idea is all, <laughs> all I can say. I mean, I think political pieces sometimes are like that. R- reports, Perry Anderson-type reports on Brazil or, or, or wherever, um, that's where it happens most. But or actually the progression of Jenny illness was in a sense like that. Um, Yes. The, and I've always been quite, it. for what it's worth, I've always been quite keen on writing serial pieces, you know, in the uh, Victorian tradition, you know, that you could, but it's a really interesting thing you've raised. I've always had a slight anxiety that it would be hard to hold the reader across 24 <laughs> numbers of the paper or whatever, Henry James 12, 10, you know, 12 months. Um, that's a big ask now, and I would worry in some obsessive way that if you lot, if you miss two in the middle, that it would all be a mess, and you know. Um, oh, but you can find them digitally. You can find them. Some still stuck in the old way. We have also sometimes thought of publishing a novel that way, but it hasn't come up. Um, but I ask particularly Mary Kay. I'm a great fan uh, who um, are there not me for a long time and have been but I don't but I do now scroll to the um, local the news agent in Notting Hill to, to, to get my copy. Um, um, but one thing sometimes I annoys me a little bit is um, one thing is wonderful and the, poss- the possibility of being digressive is, is, is can be a great boon to the writer. But um, Sometimes where I feel it comes unstuck in some of the book reviews, the, the what I in my old way call the intro, you know, the first section, um, the writer sort of turns on a sort of pirouette and shows off how clever he or she is before really Never. Remember is that they don't see it as showing up. Good editor, very tactful editor. I mean, are you harsh with anyone? Yes. <laughs> yes, we are. Um, How harsh? <laughs> we have to ask them. Um, we we certainly edit pieces, but we may not object to the showing off to the extent that you do. I can just, just see it as being interested in the subject in a general way, not as showing off. Might an addendum to the question be um, get at something about the distinctiveness of the reviews in the LRB, that they are very much standalone essays and pieces in their own right, as well as engaging with the book at hand? Is They're that... not supposed to be consumer report, but <laughs> um, for sure. Um, whether we use the, the book for our purposes, that's a very valid criticism. We do, or the writers do. Um, we think it, it or I think it, it produces a, a more interesting piece over a bit of a stretch, but because we, well, that was your idea, in fact, that 
the shorter poetry reviews that we've started doing. Why was that? <laughs> well, it was picking up on the force of the gentleman's point, I yeah. think, is that, you know, whilst it's lovely for writers to have, to use a book as the occasion for some sort of pirouette. It's um, not a pirouette. It's not just a pirouette, <laughs> but it is, um, it is true that the books are often as much an occasion as they are being reviewed. Yeah. I think that if people feel that there's a responsibility for reviewers in a magazine called The London Review to then perform that, you know, then, then they'll be disappointed quite often by the fact that the writer takes a while to get to whether the book's any good or not. Um, personally speaking, I mean, I would say this, died in the wool as I am, but I'm not interested in whether a novel is poignant, moving or touching. <laughs> I'm interested in what that writer's got to say about the world via that book. If we can return that to the, the, the notion of the digital, like, I, I would never, ever read, or I very rarely read book reviews in print, because there are so many accessible to me uh, online, and I can find out very quickly whether the book is good or not, and make my own judgments. And I think there is a distinction. I think it's one reason the long form has expanded, because if you just want a quick report, or a, you know, if you just want your five points about whether it's good or not and why it's good, then you can find that very quickly. And I, I don't go to, to print for that reading experience. And I actually very rarely am interested in reading short reviews anymore, because I can find out very quickly. It's, it's so simple. Uh, and it's two clicks away. Um, so it would almost seem to me now slightly pointless to print a review of that of that length or kind. Um, so, yeah, that. What, what do you think of apps like long form and long read? They, they, they aggregate long form articles from. Yes, I, I, I saw that last night. I was looking to see, but I don't know much about it except that they published 1,400 odd in the last year of long-form pieces, but I haven't read any. Well, it's a symptom of what Andrew was talking about, I suppose, in the sense that you have these pieces that are taken off your site and aggregated, and then suddenly they have 10,000 hits. Uh, and in certain ways, that is the way that that distribution model is, is going, that they, it gets picked up by someone else, and that has an audience, and then it goes to other people. So it, it can be helpful, but it also can be very frustrating as an editor that the work you've done on a piece is then picked up by somewhere else that takes advertising of it and distributes it more widely. So I have a, a, a conflicted relationship with the idea. I think it's slightly better than what used to happen much more often, which was that newspapers in various countries would want to publish a bit of a long-form piece. And what that usually meant was that they took the most sensational bit and put an ugly headline on it and a terrible photograph. Um, and I hated that. Because you know, the whole point of the long form, if you believe in it, and if you're going to give it a go, is that it needed ultimately to be that length. The editors are actually, you know, despite what we've said, they're actually quite tough. Uh, they're interventionist. They do a lot of cutting. They won't let things go on if they don't think it's it should be that length. Um, so to go through that whole process and then, you know, the New York Times cuts it down to 800 words and puts an evil headline on. I, I, I'm just not into that. I think things should stay the length they are. So I think those apps are quite helpful and that they preserve the pieces as they were meant to be. I was wondering why people, this is kind of explicitly not <laughs> about a long form essay, but um, whether you could talk a bit about how um, events and other um, sorts of activities support the, the work you do. Not, not necessarily <coughs> financially, but just how they um, help to engage your readers in, um, in your content. 
Uh, well, when we started, we didn't have any readers. So <laughs> events was a really good way of getting some. And the best way to gain an audience is to give them like really cheap wine and um, <laughs> put a band on or play some music or have readings. So initially, it was just a way to get anyone to, to come and buy the magazine and read it. Uh, and then it has become more and more part of what we do. Uh, and it's allowed us to meet contributors as well and, and to develop a network in London, um, which wasn't there when I first moved here. I, I'm not from here. Um, where people could find out about it and then they come and you could meet the editors really quickly and you could, you know, talk to them and get drunk with them and then suggest something and building it and keeping it going and, and also making people continually aware that you're still there, uh, and trying to build a sense of community. I mean, we're, we're very small. So really it's, um, it's important to have that kind of, I don't know, things like that going on. We have a bookshop and it's nice to have events at the bookshop and hear the writers find out what they're like um, and sometimes we in the past we've had large occasions um, where there's been a debate and it they were on the whole most of them really quite interesting um, we haven't had any recently we were going to have one on Europe but then there were so many on Europe that we gave up. I mean, it's it's nice if it's a discussion. We had a, one in the States about the Israel lobby that everybody was very engaged with and um, that worked quite well. But um, And perhaps we should do more of them. It's a really cool development in the LRB yeah. and the bookshop events. The sense that whatever the essence is that people find attractive, with the LRB, it can be diffused and repackaged and offered in different ways. We talked about single pieces, that's one way, but also events can dovetail with sort of the level of inquiry that the paper demonstrates in really good ways. So um, that's a big change. I mean, you, all, you had publications back in the 90s, didn't you? You did single publications like Stephen Sacker's book of reporting from Iraq and that Alan White book you mentioned. But yeah. there's always been an attempt to sort of use the papers uh, as a basis for, for growth. And there's a whole energetic digital team at the paper now who is bringing a whole new audience. I'm sorry to say that's all we have time for this afternoon. So let's thank Ben Easton, Mary Kay Wilmers and Andrew O'Hagan once more. Thanks for listening. You can unlock the entire LRB archive for free for 24 hours by visiting lrb.co.uk forward slash open.